Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have a Chrome OS finally becoming a real Linux distro with the base system and the system UI finally being separated from the Chrome web browser. We have some planned changes to the GNOME activities that still require your input, so if you're interested, do install their new extension, I'll tell you all about it. We have changes uh, for Mint 21.3, and they're looking at what Ubuntu is doing closely to assess whether they're gonna keep working with Ubuntu as a base, or maybe start focusing their efforts more on the Debian edition. And we also have a bunch of work on the drivers for Linux, we have some Azahi Linux related news, we have some more KD Plasma news, and a lot more. So let's get into it. As always, all the links to make this show are in the show notes, all the links that I use for all the articles, and also all the links to support the show, they're all in the show notes. So let's begin. So is Chrome OS a Linux distribution in the usual sense of the term? I think no one will ever be able to agree because, well, the definition of a Linux distro can be very narrow or very wide. Uh, I would say as of now, probably not, but it could be in the future because Google plans to split the Chrome browser from the base of Chrome OS. It's a project called Lacros for Linux and Chrome OS, so L-A-C-R-O-S. And with this project, which has been in development for the past two years, you could already enable it using a flag when running Chrome OS, but now it's going to be made the default. And what this project does is splitting the Linux-based operating system from the releases of the Chrome browser. Uh, Basically, Chrome powers everything that you're doing in Chrome OS, including the whole system and user interface. Uh, So Chrome is rendering your taskbar, your notifications, your on-screen display stuff, and everything. And it's all packed in one single binary. It also includes the window manager and everything else. And so it's just one binary for Chrome and the whole system, the visual, at least the visual part of the system. And so this new design splits this in two. You've got the system UI, the window manager and stuff like that running in their own binaries and processes and the browser running separately as well. And this new project goes further than this. It also moves Chrome OS from their own graphics stack because Google could apparently not use the default graphics stack on on Linux, and now they're going to run the web browser and the system UI on Wayland on top of the usual Linux graphics stack, so Mesa and its drivers. They're not building their own drivers and their own graphics stack anymore for this. It should probably have been the default years ago, but there was probably a reason for Google to not go this way. There was, I don't think, there was no reason uh, to duplicate this kind of intensive work But they did it, and now they're moving back to the general stack, which also means that maybe Google will start contributing to the general Linux graphical stack to actually support more devices with Chrome OS, which should benefit the whole Linux community. So it's a good thing as well. And finally, Chrome OS will not use its own release of Google Chrome anymore. They will just use the regular Linux version of Chrome that you can already use on any other Linux distribution something that might also generate more attention from Google towards better Linux support in their web browser, and probably in turn in Chromium and other other Chromium-based browsers as well. So all these changes are starting in build 1.16 of Chrome OS. Uh, It should implement all these changes by default, 
when, as I said previously, you needed to use a specific flag to run the, the various binaries separately. In terms of UI and general use of Chrome OS, you probably will not see any change for now, but I think splitting things up is not just done for the benefit of the Linux community. Probably Google does not give a rat's ass about any of this. Uh, they probably just want simpler development. Because for now, if you have to bundle every single change to your window manager, to the system UI, to the web browser in a single binary, then your testing becomes very complicated. Uh, the more you split things up, probably the least efficient you might become because there might be some duplicated work, there might be some more overhead, but also testing becomes a lot easier. And so probably Google can ship features to the system UI or features to Chrome specifically on Chrome OS way easier. So why should you care? You probably shouldn't if you're not a Chrome OS user. And if you want to use Chrome OS and you tried Chrome OS Flex, you probably noticed that it was pretty crap compared to a regular Linux distro. It's slower, it's less efficient, it's, it's just not a great operating system on a PC when you could use a lightweight Linux distro that does a lot more. But since Google is looking like they're trying to mainline more uh, of their work for Chrome OS, not, not working on their own operating system all on their own with their own stuff, Chrome OS specific developments, but more using Linux as it was intended, a Linux-based operating system. Chrome OS is based on Gen 2, if I remember correctly. So they want to base their work more on a real Linux base and contributing their work in smaller increments on smaller projects and binaries, which will, in the end, benefit the whole Linux community. Because Google is all in on Chrome OS. And even if we don't plan to use it, if they want to support a lot of devices for Chrome OS Flex, for Chrome OS, the regular Chrome OS, well, they're going to have to support the Linux graphics stack, which is what they're going to start using, which means they might contribute more stuff to Wayland, they might contribute more stuff to Mesa, or at least make manufacturers for their devices contribute their drivers back to uh, the general Linux graphics stack, which is good for everyone. And in terms of browser, I would probably personally never use Google Chrome, but if you do, or if you use a Google Chrome-based browser, something based on Chromium, then you probably will also get some improvements because, well, Google will be able to support it faster. And since they will now ship on their main desktop OS a normal Linux version of, of Chrome, then they're going to have to contribute their changes to every single Linux user for Chrome, which is really good. So I think it's a good thing. I think it might turn Chrome OS into a real Linux distro. It won't run one of our usual desktop environments. It will still run the proprietary, I think it's proprietary, uh, Chrome OS system UI and the proprietary Chrome browser, but it will be based on more open technologies. And I think it's a great move uh, that will probably, I think, benefit uh, Linux in general. Now, if you're a GNOME user, you probably learned uh, about their new planned auto, let's call it auto floating feature because it's not really tiling uh, that I talked about last week. Basically what they want to implement is something where Windows declare, well, applications declare the window sizes that they would like to use. So the smallest one at which the app is usable, the biggest one and something in between. And the system, GNOME, would automatically try and position them on screen so they have the most correct or the most usable size possible without overlapping and without being like laid on top of each other 
And so it would automatically tile some stuff or move some stuff to other desktops, virtual desktops, automatically maximize stuff and stuff like that. So that's one change that they are planning, but it's for the future. For something closer to maybe GNOME 45, uh, we have a replacement for the activities button. Uh, you know, this is the little text button uh, positioned in the top left corner. And they're thinking maybe it's not really very clear what it does. Uh, if you are new to GNOME, you might not know that you can click it. If you hover over it, you're going to see there's some kind of pill overlay. So, you know, yes, you can click that. But if you don't hover over it or if you have something like a touch screen, you don't really know what this does until you click it. And so they want to try and change this to be a bit more legible and understandable by default. And so what they are proposing is replacing this text activities with a visual representation of your virtual desktops. So basically you would get one dot per virtual desktop and the one you're currently in is represented with some kind of pill shaped stuff along the lines of what GNOME is doing with like rounded corners and stuff like that. Uh, so as you move through your virtual desktops, you would see this pager indicator, basically, that would replace the activities button, you would see this move uh, to represent the desktop that you're in. And so you always know if there's a desktop to your left or to your right, or how many desktops there are to your left or to your right. Basically, it's like a pager widget that you could already add uh, with a few GNOME extensions or that you might use on KDE, but it would be based, uh, it would be baked into GNOME directly and it would be a symbolic representation. You wouldn't see any window shapes or application icons to let you know what's on each desktop. And clicking this indicator, of course, will bring the activities view with the visual representation of your virtual desktops and the windows. So you can already try this new thing out. You can download the extension and install it. It's still manual, I think, for now. I don't think it has been uploaded to the GNOME extensions portal, but maybe it has been uh, while I was writing and recording this. Uh, but it's relatively easy to install. You just download a file and you copy-paste it into a directory. Very easy. And so you can give the GNOME devs your feedback. Personally, I can already see a few inconsistencies with this extension and this new thing. Uh, for example, the on-screen display at the bottom of the screen when you're changing workspaces, it doesn't display this pill shape uh, when you're on the for, for the virtual desktop you're on. It's only dots. So it's not coherent with what is displayed in the new indicator uh, up top, in the top bar. And I'm not personally sure that this representation is more understandable as a button as the activities button already is. Uh, because it still doesn't look like a button, it's still an abstract shape. And if you don't use virtual desktops at all, then all you're gonna see is one single pill-shaped thing and there's nothing else. So will you understand that this is clickable and usable? I'm not sure. Uh, this extension also apparently seems to remove the application name menu. So for example, if you opened Audacity, you would see the Audacity text and icon up top near the activities button. It looks like this extension is also removing this. Uh, this is a change that they have planned for a while now, uh, removing the application name menu. It was virtually useless. There's nothing in it. Uh, just the same actions as there are in the right-click item, uh, a right-click action menu uh, on the on the application's grid. So not super useful. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna install it on my laptop and desktop, see how it looks, see how it's usable, and maybe give uh, the GNOME dev some feedback if I encounter a few issues or if I don't think it's that legible. 
I'm not sure about this change. It looks good, but I'm not sure it's more legible than just having the activities text or just a symbolic icon that would represent Windows or virtual desktops. Now, the Linux Mint developers shared some details about the upcoming new release of Linux Mint Debian Edition, which is version 6 now. It doesn't follow the same naming scheme uh, as the Ubuntu-based Linux Mint releases. And they also talked about Linux Mint 21.3 planned for a December release. And for this new version, they are planning to fix Secure Boot, but they also want to start assessing Wayland support to see how much work there is to be done for its potential adoption. That's their wording. They're saying potential adoption, which is a choice of word that might lead one to think that there's a choice uh, whether they would not want to adopt Wayland, which there really isn't, if we're honest about it. Like, they can assess whether it's a good idea to implement it now or later, but they're gonna have to implement it if they want to stay relevant. They're also working on what they're calling an edge ISO, which is basically the exact same feature set as the Linux Mint you might already know, but it uses a newer kernel. So it will work on more recent hardware compared to the relatively old base of Mint 21.2, which is based on Ubuntu 22.04. So a system that is now more than a year old and obviously has an older LTS kernel. Uh, Mint also talked about their relationship with Ubuntu and their plans because as we all know, they have Linux Mint Debian Edition, which is always kept up to date a bit later than the Ubuntu-based version. But a lot of people are just asking Linux Mint to, to just move to Linux Mint Debian Edition as the default edition. Because Mint is not really in agreement with most decisions Ubuntu does. They remove snaps, they repackage stuff as devs, they generally tend to remove uh, the specific customizations of Ubuntu, they don't use their GNOME modified desktop, they replace all the default apps, by something else. So basically what they use is their package base and Ubuntu seems to be willing to move away from that package base for a lot of stuff, including most graphical applications. So a lot of people are always clamoring for Mint to drop Ubuntu as a base and just use Debian instead. And so that's what uh, Clément Lefebvre, which is their lead developer, talked about. Apparently Mint 21.3 will still be based on Ubuntu 22.04 because they only change the base when there's a new LTS. But in 2024, in April, there will be a new Ubuntu LTS, which will be 24.04. And it's probably going to rely on Snap a lot more than previous releases. For example, the COPS printing server will be moved to a Snap. A lot more apps might be Snap as well. And yeah, we know that Linux Mint doesn't really like all of this. So they said that they're going to look at the quality of the package base for Ubuntu 24.04 and assess whether they still want to use Ubuntu as their base or not. If you read between the lines, you get the feeling that they don't really want to move away from Ubuntu, but that they will do so if it becomes too much work to fix, and I'm putting that into air quotes, to fix what they don't like with the Ubuntu base, because it's not that it's inherently wrong, it's just that it's an opinion that they don't share. So Clément Lefebvre, which is the founder of Linux Mint, as I said, also asked people to stop being super negative about Ubuntu and to stay civil when discussing which base should be used. Uh, basically, a vocal minority is always clamoring, saying that Ubuntu is crap, they should ditch it, it's, it's the Microsoft of Linux or whatever, which is not helpful and does not factor it into a decision like this. And it's also a nice reminder that it's not necessarily easy to just move to Debian. Because Ubuntu also does a lot of work on top of Debian 
to be way more user-friendly and accessible in terms of drivers, in terms of pre-installed configurations. And this work, Mint would have to completely do themselves if they decided to drop Ubuntu as a base. They probably already do it for Linux Mint Debian Edition, but as you can see, Linux Mint Debian Edition comes way later than the usual Ubuntu-based version. And as much as I'm not a fan of what Ubuntu is turning into, I don't really like snaps, I prefer flatpaks, I don't really like their orientation with GNOME, with just not shipping a vanilla experience, I don't quite like their theme or icons, and I don't like a lot of decisions that Canonical as a company makes in terms of open source projects. But I cannot deny that Ubuntu does a lot of work to make things user-friendly and easy to use. And dropping all of this because you don't like snaps and it's a little bit too much work to remove them, it's not an easy decision. It, it needs to be assessed and that's what the Linux Mint team is doing, which I think is really good. Now, if you follow along the macOS, well, not macOS, but Apple Macintosh support of, on Linux, you know about the Asahi Linux project. They're basically retro-engineering, reverse-engineering every single driver for this new Apple Silicon platform, and they're doing an awesome job of it. But they also announced a new offshoot of Asahi Linux, because the basic Asahi distro is based on Arch, and it's just a testing ground, basically. It's not stable, it's not meant to be stable, it's meant to be used and basically report problems and discover how the system is usable in production or not for you specifically, depending on what you need for, for hardware support. And so they're working with Fedora now to bring a Fedora Asahi remix, which in short is Fedora with all of its decisions in terms of desktop environment, subsystems and and every backend related stuff, but with all the hardware enablements that Azahi developed and includes to run on M1 and M2 Macs, whether it's a laptop or a desktop. And of course, it's early steps for now. They already have an ISO, but they say it's really not that ready. It will probably break a lot, so you should not use it in production, but it's more to get started on integrating all the work that Azahi does into other distributions because that's always been the goal of Azahi Linux. They just want to upstream all their work as soon as it's ready and stable enough, whether it's in the Linux kernel or in graphics, in Mesa, whatever. They want to keep Azahi as the bleeding edge testing grounds for newer Apple Silicon hardware, but they want other distributions to be able to be used on any uh, Apple Mac. And so the official release for Fedora Azahi Remix will be at the end of August. And it is based on some init scripts that are already in Fedora's repos, but it also uses a set of copper repos, which are basically the PPAs for Fedora, uh, which are already served from Fedora's infrastructure. So it should also offer some additional testing into ARM64 packages for various applications that are in Fedora's repos. For now, they don't really have a big user base for testing because there are not many devices that use the ARM64 architecture and that also support Linux. So I think it's a great thing. I am personally done testing macOS uh, for channel-related stuff on my M1 MacBook Pro, so I will probably give Fedora Azahi a shot in August or September after the official release. And if it's usable enough, I'll make a video about it. Maybe I'll compare it with Azahi proper to see what, what the differences are and whether if you want to run Linux on an M1 Mac, uh, whether you can and which distro you should maybe turn your attention to. 
Now, we also have a bunch of KDE-related news this week, uh, first with an update on the Plasma 6 roadmap. And apparently, everything is proceeding as planned, they are not encountering any specific delays. Almost all the porting tasks in terms of the visual components are done, including all the SVG elements. Uh, they are now using Kirigami almost everywhere where it's needed. They have finished modernizing the Plasmoid API, so Plasmoids being all the little widgets that you can put either in your panels or on the desktop. And they also finished moving all the actions of the system settings pages to the header of the application, so you don't have two rows of action buttons at the bottom of various settings pages. There's still some backend work for the KDE frameworks on which most KDE apps are based. There's still some porting work to be done there. But it should streamline a lot of things already, especially in the visual department. Now, they're saying that icon themes are now correctly being used throughout the whole system without a hitch. You will still need Plasma-enabled or KDE-specific icon themes because some icons that KDE uses are not available in some themes for GNOME. But now Plasma will use icon themes a lot better than it used to. And so now the developers can focus on implementing the remaining planned features and polishing things up. And if you want to test Plasma 6 already, there's another interesting uh, news, which is a new branch of KDE Neon. Uh, you already had KDE Neon Stable for day-to-day -day use. Uh, I think you had Testing, and I think you had Unstable. And now you have Experimental, which gives you a full Plasma 6 desktop with a, every single Plasma 6-related development updated daily, and it's obviously not a stable thing to be used daily by most people or in production, but it's a cool, easy-to-use testing ground. You can also upgrade your existing KDE Neon installation to this new experimental one if you want to. Just be warned, it's not a stable thing that you should use in production. And they also have a nice little wiki page with all the remaining features that they have in store. Apparently, there's a power profile on-screen display element. Uh, there will be time zone conversions in KRunner. They will support sound themes, so you can customize how your desktop sounds. They will have basic HDR opt-in support. They will have floating panels by default, the Wayland section by default, and a lot more. So it's going to be an exciting time, and I will probably try and install uh, this Neon Experimental on a spare laptop to start maybe looking at how things evolve and what has changed compared to 5.27. And this week, the Red Hat saga continues. Uh, so after they shot themselves in the foot with their tightening around their source code, uh, and they spawned new competitors, especially from OpenSUSE, which will now ship a completely free and open source clone of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, uh, some other alternatives like Alma Linux decided to go into a more community-focused, more peaceful way. They didn't want to tackle Red Hat head-on, and so they decided to stop being 100% bug-for-bug compatible with Red Hat and just maintain what they call, well, what is called ABI compatibility, which is Application Binary Interface Compatibility, which means that any application package for Red Hat Enterprise Linux will run the exact same on Alma Linux. You won't encounter every single quirk and bug of Red Hat Enterprise Linux on Alma Linux, but you will be able to run all the Red Hat software on Alma Linux without a hitch. And so they decided to try and collaborate more directly with Red Hat by fixing some stuff and offering these fixes upstream to CentOS Stream in the hopes that it's also included in Red Hat Enterprise Linux, including some security vulnerabilities. Except 
Apparently, working with Red Hat isn't the easiest thing either. Alma fixed a memory overflow problem, which is marked as important in terms of vulnerabilities. It's not crucial, but it is nice to have it fixed. And they obviously offered the development they done, they did, uh, to Red Hat. It was apparently accepted uh, for Fedora, for CentOS Stream, but it was rejected for inclusion in Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Red Hat said, unless a customer asks us to fix this, we will not fix it. Justifying this with the testing time it would take, verifying that there are no problems and, and, and no incompatibilities. So basically, they will only fix critical and important vulnerabilities. Anything lower will be fixed only if a customer asks them to do so, and then they'll look into it. And of course, they were called on this BS answer uh, by a lot of users saying, hey, come on, you asked your clones to stop just being clones and to start committing some code and contributing. And when they start doing this, you don't accept their code and patches? What gives? It's so dumb. And obviously, Red Hat reassessed the issue, rated it as important, and merged the fix to alleviate the concerns of users. But as a bunch of users pointed out, Red Hat went, let's, they call it commercial, but they didn't go commercial. They locked this specific source code for Red Hat Enterprise Linux behind a paywall and made like clones work really difficult. And their rationale was, you're just taking our stuff and not contributing back. And when they start contributing back, they just don't want the fixes. This is not a good look. And even if it was not a major vulnerability, it was an easy gesture to show that, yes, we're still willing to work with the wider community and we like the fact that our previous clones are starting to contribute more and are more involved in our community. It was an easy gesture, but they didn't jump at it. They just said, you know what, keep your dirty fixes. That's not good. So let's hope it gets better after that and they realize that they really do need some goodwill and they just cannot deny uh, some contributions unless they're really bad and the code is really crap. Now, this week we also have a bunch of driver-related updates. Uh, first with Mesa 23.2, which, if you don't know, are the open-source drivers uh, for AMD and for Intel GPUs and also a bunch of uh, ARM-based integrated GPUs as well. And so this new release now also supports uh, the drivers for the integrated graphics on Apple Silicon Macs. Uh, there's also better support for a wide variety of games on RDNA 3 GPUs from AMD, which basically is the RX 7000 series of GPUs. And they now support OpenGL 3.1 and OpenGL ES 3.0 on Asahi, so on Apple Silicon Macs. And this is now directly included in Mesa. We also have some news about the CPU power utility in the Linux kernel uh, in the next version of the kernel, 6.6, which will now enable support for the AMD P-states. Uh, this means that AMD CPUs will be able to more easily change their state between passive, active, and the new guided autonomous mode. And this translates to more efficiency, less power being used, the, the correct state being used more often, which should result in better battery life on AMD CPUs. And they also improved CPU frequency scaling and turbo boosting, which were already accessible. Uh, you could turn this on with some flags and some command line utilities, but it was not easily accessible for user space applications or for users in general. And now various tools and desktop environments might be able to take better advantage of these tools through CPU power, 
So basically our Linux desktops should be more efficient and use less power and have more battery life uh, on the new version of the kernel 6.6 .6 when it releases. And it's always great to see that there's a lot of efficiency focused work on Linux these days. I think the battery life part of Linux was always a weak spot. Uh, a lot of people report less battery life on Linux than on Windows on the same devices. And so seeing some work for supporting the various P states and having various efficiency fixes to turbo boost specific logical cores, uh, like I reported on last week, I think it's great. We're going to get more battery life and our, our systems will just be more efficient. It's all good all around. Now this week we also had the Thunderbird 115 release finally dropping onto FlatHub, which means you don't have to install it manually through a tar.gz archive, a portable archive. You can finally install it easily in one click from your app store and that's good. But they also explained a few things about this release. They had a small bug fix uh, release to obviously fix a bunch of bugs. Uh, with this new Supernova uh, release and they also tweaked the UI just a little bit to make it less confusing uh, but they also explained why a major feature wasn't there which was Thunderbird Sync. Uh, this was something that they wanted to add in the Supernova release and it would basically let you sync your whole inbox and settings and whatever else between devices. But it turns out building something like this can be pretty tricky uh, they're basing all their work on the Firefox Sync code, which obviously, like Mozilla, is, is still the owner of Thunderbird through a subsidiary, and they already have this code for syncing your preferences and settings securely through your uh, Firefox browser. So why not reuse that for Thunderbird? Except you still need a server and an architecture for storage and, and making sure everything is secure. And that's what they were lacking to deliver this for the 115 update. So they plan to ship it in 2024 now, as Thunderbird moves to monthly releases. They still gave a few details on what will sync, and it looks like it will include all email accounts, all your email credentials, all your signatures, all your saved searches, tags, tasks, filters, and major preferences. We don't know if this includes extensions or not, but this will be cross-compatible between all operating systems and with the future Thunderbird mobile release for Android. So you could have all your settings on Thunderbird on Linux synced to a Windows device, a Mac device, the Android app when it's released. It's pretty cool. And I've been using Thunderbird as my default email and calendar client on all my computers since 115 was released. It took a little bit of getting used to because I came from uh, two different apps. I used Geary and Gnome Calendar. And these are really, really super simple. And so moving to Thunderbird was a bit of a shock at first, but I can honestly say that they nailed it. It's now become second nature, it's very easy to use, I like the interface, and yes, it's not the best integrated application on Linux that you could find, although since it's also using the main interface code from Firefox as well, as far as I know, you can theme it using uh, user Chrome CSS stuff, and so there's already a theme for uh, Libid Vita for Thunderbird, which makes it look a lot like a GNOME app instead of looking like a separate third-party app. So I think it's great. It's now finally available on FlatHub, so it's easy to install anywhere. And yes, I would like to have access to that sync feature, but it's not crucial to my workflow. So yeah, I'd rather they take their time, implement it well and very securely since there's all your credentials in there, so it needs to be at least encrypted. So I'd rather they take their time and make something good instead of rushing it and having problems uh, down the line.
Now, we also have the usual privacy-related stuff. Uh, it looks like the EU has finally managed to break the back of Meta. They will finally comply with the most recent laws that stated that no, the terms and conditions aren't enough to be used as consent uh, from your users to target them with ads. Uh, this is a new regulation that passed, I think, early this year in 2023. And that Meta tried to skirt around saying, you know what, the users signed the terms and conditions, so they give unconditional consent, except obviously no one reads these. And you can't really expect people to read these because they're absolutely full of legalese. So the EU said, no, that's not okay. You need to ask for consent separately. Meta refused. There was a sort of a battle. They got fined. And so they, they will finally cave in. They will ask directly for consent to their users to basically target them with ads. Uh, they, they really did not want to do that. Uh, they tried to hack something around this that didn't quite fit. They threatened to stop offering their services in the EU, but now they just stopped running around the bush and beating around the bush. And they decided, you know what? Okay, yeah, we're going to ask users for consent. They did not share any details on how they will gather said consent and how they will do it for their current users. But it is still pretty good to see. It shows that the EU, when they're firm enough, and when they actually fight for the users, they can get stuff done and they can make these big companies shut the hell up and just be respectful of users. Pro well, let's not say respectful, but at least mindful of user preferences. And of course, the EU is not a paragon of virtue, as shown by their recent law that might really hurt open source software. But at least on the privacy front, they're doing pretty well. And we also have Apple keeping their fight against targeting and, and, and ads and personal information gathering. They will now ask developers to provide a reason when they use specific APIs, presumably on iOS, but maybe also on macOS, uh, APIs that would let the developer gather some user data that could be used to determine the identity of a user through fingerprinting. So maybe their device, uh, specific information about where they are, and what application they use or whatever. If, if you combine all of this, you could pretty much identify someone specifically saying, okay, this is an M1 MacBook Pro located here uh, using this web browser with this specific setting or preference. And so, yeah, I can sort of identify who this is. So developers will need to provide a valid reason for using APIs that provide this information to their application. It only concerns a few APIs uh, of Apple's, and Apple will not stop developers from using them, but they will require a what they call a valid reason uh, from developers. And obviously this might be seen as another lockdown of the Apple platform, which fortunately won't be here for long, at least in the EU, because they're going to have to allow uh, third-party stores on iOS. So this lockdown on APIs will probably be stopped pretty soon. But it's also an interesting move from them to try and preserve user privacy. Of course, you can't ignore that Apple does not apply the same rules to themselves and their own applications uh, than the rules that they apply to other developers. Uh, they have been known to gather data on their users, not prompt users for consent for this, and just not really let users disable any of this data gather gathering for their own Apple apps. So third-party developers have to conform to a bunch of pretty stringent rules on how they can collect data, share it with other apps, and, and generally build a profile. But Apple can do it. 
And so this new restriction for app developers will probably not be enforced uh, on Apple's own apps, because why would they do this? And there's obviously another like inquiry in the EU about this, because, well, this does not really look like fair competition, does it? Okay, now let's finish this with the gaming news. So first we have the Linux market share on Steam growing again to almost 2% now. And it's now higher than macOS. 1.96% of Steam users that took the Steam survey, so it might not be fully representative of all gamers on Steam, they now use Linux, which is a huge jump from the previous month. And obviously SteamOS and Holo ISO are in the lead with 42% of Linux users. Uh, they're followed by Arch and Ubuntu at around 8% and 7.3% respectively. And obviously AMD CPUs are overrepresented because, well, Steam Deck, it uses an AMD CPU and it's probably the vast majority of Linux Steam users now. It's 69% of the Linux gaming hardware, which is a nice number, but also a really nice fact. Uh, this means that Linux is now, well, should now be considered by game developers as a more interesting platform to support than macOS. Well, everybody in the gaming industry probably knows this already, but maybe there were some holdovers because macOS has 20% market share on the desktop, where Linux barely maintains itself at 3%. Well, it passed 3% and it maintained itself at 3%. So it wasn't just a fluke a few months ago. It's still 3% on the desktop. And it's now 2% on the gaming side of things, which is higher than macOS now. So while macOS has 20% market share on the desktop in general, for gaming, they're really, really small. And so as a game developer, you might think, well, I should still target Macs because, well, it's like one user out of five that uses a Mac. So if I make a game for Macs, I will probably get more potential sales. Except no, because gamers just don't use Macs at all, and so you probably should target the Steam Deck or Linux with Proton at least, instead of wasting your time building the game for macOS, because, well, as we can see now, there are more Linux gamers than Mac gamers. And we also have another example of how Linux gaming can be really cool, but also really unstable at the same time. Uh, because we had an Ubisoft Connect update, obviously a client that is only made for Windows and only supported on Linux uh, because Valve worked it, worked it out in Proton and with the Wine developers. And so this update completely broke Ubisoft Connect on Linux. It made Ubisoft games completely unplayable for a while. So this is the unstable part. Uh, developers just generally don't care about their stuff on Linux. If it works, cool, but they're still going to push their updates for the Windows client and not test it on Linux because, well, it's still only 2% market share. But the awesome part of Linux gaming comes from Valve and generally the Wine developers and the Proton developers because they fixed the problem almost immediately in Proton Experimental and so it restored support for the launcher and restored uh, access to these games. And I will say it once again, launchers suck. And this includes Steam and everything else. I hate that we need launchers to play games on Linux or generally just on PC. Valve is carrying Linux gaming on their own, thanks to a lot of work from the community, but they're basically the only real stable and let's say official way to play games on Linux. But I just wish games were available without stores or launchers and on physical media, so you could just install them without needing an account, a third-party app, or 
or having to jump through hoops on Linux to install a third-party unofficial launcher to get access to this and retrofit Proton on it. I wish launchers were not a thing and you could just buy the game from the publisher and install it. Uh, there was a time when you could do that before Steam or even after Steam. Uh, there was a company, I think it was called Loki Games or something like that, uh, which repackaged games using Wine and redistributed them for Linux. It was official, like the game developers were okay with that, and so they basically sort of ported some Windows games to Linux using Wine, and it worked well. It did have good performance, and you could buy a copy from them. I'm not sure the copy was physical, but you could buy it. And you didn't need a launcher. Everything was packed into the game. And I wish this was still the case. I, I love what Valve is doing for the Linux gaming community. I love what they're doing with the Steam Deck. But you're still tying all your gaming experience to one single company, which has a virtual monopoly for gaming on Linux. Uh, the day they decide that, hey, you know what, yeah, we're okay with Windows, we don't care about Linux anymore, it's too much work, it costs us too much money, the risks have not panned out, Let, let's forget about it. We're going to lose our access to games because developers will not care anymore and the community won't be able to pick up uh, the entirety of the slack that Valve, that Valve will have dropped. So I wish games were just physical and, yeah, you could just buy a game, put the CD or the USB key or whatever into your computer and install from there and just, like, download Proton or Wine or whatever and do it yourself. Yes, it's more manual work, but I still wish you had that option, honestly. So, yeah, this is me done being a boomer and ranting about how better stuff was, which... It probably wasn't better anyways. Uh, who cares? So thank you for listening to this podcast and this end rant. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to it and you managed to stick to the end. As always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, all the links are in the show notes. And if you want to support the show, I left a bunch of links in the show notes as well. So thank you all for listening. And I guess you will hear me rant again in the next one next week. Bye.